and there's been plenty of people who have done this incorrectly already. I'm sure there'll be plenty more, but fortunately there are occasionally business owners out there who, who get advice before they sign things. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Text Talks, update number nine. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. For you and many of your clients, the loss or significant drop in turnover creates three major issues. How to pay staff, how to pay supplies and how to pay your lease. The JobKeeper payments help you with wages suppliers often just have to wait. So that leaves the lease. What do you do when you can't pay the lease? On the 7th of April 2020, the federal government issued a national code of conduct for commercial landlords and their small business tenants, small business tenants which have a turnover of up to 50 million per year. The code of conduct states 14 principles to govern the relationship between these two, landlords and small business tenants. Here's Scott McKenzie of Velocity Legal in Melbourne giving you an overview and then walking you through the 14 principles of the Code of Conduct for Commercial Tenancies. The Commercial Tenancies Code, is it a legislative instrument? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting because the Commercial Tenancies Code of Conduct was a very, very recent government announcement. And in terms of the force that it has from a legal perspective, it actually doesn't really have standalone force. The code will be implemented in the various states and territories with specific legislation in each of those those regions, in those states and territories. So it's essentially an instrument that was developed at the Commonwealth level to try to create harmony across the country, but it's implemented on a state-by-state legislative basis. So it's basically an arms to call from the federal government to the state and territory governments to amend their respective tenancy laws to comply with this code, because I assume most of the relationship between landlords and tenants is governed by state or territory law and not by federal law. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely spot on. And so it was more that the federal government felt very nervous about the legal situation of tenants, of commercial tenants who can no longer pay their lease and hence they issued this code to really put the issue on the table and to tell the states and territories you have to do something. You need to amend your laws so that we protect businesses and that they can't be evicted. Absolutely. So I guess from that perspective, the reason for the push by the Commonwealth government was both landlords and tenants kind of felt like they did nothing wrong landlords on one hand have to pay their mortgages and they have to pay all the costs involved and from their perspective why should they suffer because of this situation that has nothing to do with them and then on the other hand tenants were thinking hey the government's forced me to shut down i shouldn't have to pay to rent a premises and essentially the commonwealth government had to step in and create a somewhat unified system across the country and of course because commercial leasing is dealt with on a state-by-state basis you know there needed to be some kind of commonwealth action to align all the states and territories has the federal government issued something similar in this respect to residential tenancies to make sure that people are not evicted and are becoming homeless during this time Similarly, this is quite a state-by-state and territory-by-territory kind of uh, legal situation, I guess, in terms of dealing with residential tenancies. The, I guess the upshot of what we've seen so far is trying to be very compassionate towards tenants who can't pay their rent and, for example, having you know a period of time in which non-payment of rent can't result in a tenant being kicked out of their their home. So is there a residential tenancy code that 
is similar to the commercial tenancies code? Not to, to my knowledge. I certainly in terms of our focus and the advice we've been providing, it's been very focused on commercial clients and business owners and landlords. My understanding is that there hasn't been anything similar for residential tenancies, probably due to, I guess, the nature of, you know, the landlord-tenant relationship in the residential space. There's quite a big power gap and it's probably more appropriate for the government to just come up with some hard and fast rules. Whereas with commercial tenancies, those arrangements can be negotiated between the parties and, you know, they're both probably relatively sophisticated. So there wasn't a need for hard and fast rules, but rather this kind of guidebook to negotiations. This guidebook for negotiations that has been issued by the federal government, has that already been implemented now into state and territory legislation? So have the states and territories already done their homework and amended respective laws? I wish. Um, yeah, we're getting constant questions from clients about how far away the legislation is in in the various states. Um, some states are more progressed than others, but yeah, we're certainly waiting with bated breath to see what ends up being rolled out across the states and territories and to see if there are any differences in how the states tackle these challenges and We've certainly got a lot of questions about how this will be implemented from a practical perspective because there are quite a few potential challenges in some of the requirements of, of the code. But yeah, it's still a wait and see approach, unfortunately. The most appropriate place to start, which was the the item of the code that most of our clients who are tenants raced to straight away was landlords not being able to terminate a lease for non-payment of rent during the pandemic period and a reasonable recovery period. So in the early days of the, the pandemic, we had a lot of clients calling us saying, are we going to get kicked out of our business premises? What happens if we can't afford to pay rent this month? And there were some big question marks there, but fortunately the code does make it quite clear that landlords have to hold fire on terminating a lease just because of non-payment of rent. And do you have the impression that landlords follow this code even though on that particular point, even though the code is not actually law and the code hasn't been implemented into law yet? Yeah, it's a very tricky one. We're seeing some very interesting things in the trenches at the moment and we've seen some interesting situations that are unfolding where I guess some landlords are being a little bit opportunistic and they're trying to rush into arrangements directly with their tenants or trying to, I guess, kick tenants out of the premises without, you know, directly breaching the code, but trying to be a bit creative there. So the sense that I get so far is it's a bit of a Wild West situation. Some landlords have been a bit reckless with how they've approached it. Some tenants have been a bit reckless with how they've approached it, but I'm hoping that uh, everyone will approach this with cool heads and, and try to work out good solutions once the legislation comes into force. The landlords are also in a difficult position because if they kick a tenant out now, nobody will rent the premises. So an unpaying tenant is still better than no tenant at all, I would assume. Yeah, it's quite an interesting one because that's my view on it as well. Surely you're better having a tenant in there rather than no tenant, but with certain industries that the government shut down very quickly, such as restaurants, you know, cafes, uh, yeah, 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 gyms, restaurants, cafes, those kind of businesses are all of a sudden not that attractive to have you know a tenant of that variety in the premises. So some landlords are trying to move on tenants of that nature and replace them with you know a, a type of business that isn't as likely to be affected by by COVID. Basically, the thinking is, God knows when the gym can open again, so I might as well kick them out and replace them with, let's assume flower shops are still going really well. Let's, let's replace them with a flower shop because they can pay rent. Or a supermarket or a health clinic. 
it's quite an interesting interesting one and certainly I would never recommend that a landlord takes that kind of aggressive action because I think it's quite against the spirit of the code but yeah we're seeing some very interesting things and I think the upshot is people just need to be pretty careful before they take any course of action whether they're a landlord or a tenant. So do you find that the code did weigh into the negotiations a little bit or do you find people basically are ignoring the code? It's not law, so why bother about it and you just negotiate what you would have negotiated anyway if the code wasn't there? Or do you find that the code does have a little bit of an impact to soften the um, aggressiveness on both sides? I certainly think it's had an impact to soften the aggressiveness. And what it really does is it provides a pathway forward and it provides the parties with clarity on, you know, what the legislation will eventually say. So I certainly think it would be dangerous for a landlord or a tenant to just completely throw the code out the window and assume that it's not going to have an impact because, I'm already seeing in the conversations between most landlords and, and tenants, the codes being referred to quite extensively. And do you know if changes to the actual state law governing the tenancy relationships, do you know if that's actually in the pipeline? So we'll be coming in days or weeks or months to go to come or you're not aware of the state governments or territories at all picking this up? Yeah, my understanding is it's a very high priority for all of the states and territories at the moment to get the legislation in place. Of course, there's always the balancing act. You don't want to rush it because if you rush it, you might um, create a bit of a loophole that either a landlord or a tenant could exploit. But the impression I get across all the states and territories is this is a key priority. If you're facing a tenant or landlord who doesn't pay any attention to the code and wants to do something completely different, then the advice would be just hold on, stall, postpone somehow. The code will become law very soon and then things will be sorted. Absolutely. And I guess there's an opportunity now for landlords and tenants to already negotiate a outcome or a solution between themselves the thing that isn't quite clear yet, though, is what the legislation will say in relation to those arrangements that were negotiated before the legislation came into place. Or comes, will come into place because it's not in place yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And my suspicion with it is that the arrangements entered into between now and when the legislation comes into place will be upheld but it's just uncertain about whether some of these safety nets and these, um, I guess, provisions will actually apply to those arrangements that are, that are struck now. So it's quite a simple test. The first test is that the relevant business has turnover of $50 million or less per annum. And the second test, which we've actually got a little bit more clarity on recently, which is helpful, is that the business is in a position of financial distress. And is that defined? Yes. Very importantly, we've got clarity on that, which states that if a business is eligible for the JobKeeper program, they will automatically be deemed to satisfy that requirement. So essentially... If you are eligible for the JobKeeper program and you have an annual turnover of less than $50 million per annum, the code will apply. If you qualify for the JobKeeper program and you have a turnover of less than $50 million, you are deemed to be in financial distress and hence you qualify to apply the code. So we basically just have two requirements and that is JobKeeper program and less than $50 million turnover. Correct. And it was rather curious in the code, there was a reference, which was a bit of a call to arms and, a, you know, a request for everyone to band together essentially during this challenging times where it said the principles of this code should nevertheless apply in spirit to all leasing arrangements, which essentially says if you don't meet the criteria and if you're outside of the code, 
the government has this warm and fuzzy kind of statement that they hope that landlords and tenants, even in those situations, will, you know, have good faith conversations and consider some of these items as well. Let's assume the code does apply to you and me. What can we then do or not do? Principle number one. Landlords must not terminate a lease due to non-payment of rent during the pandemic period or reasonable subsequent recovery period. The first and probably the most important for a lot of people's perspectives was what I mentioned before, that landlords cannot terminate a lease for non-payment of rent during the pandemic period and a reasonable recovery period. So you can't get kicked out for not paying rent during these challenging times. And have they defined what the recovery period is? Are we talking months or years? Yeah, it's very unclear and it will hinge on how quickly, I guess, the business world restores back to its its previous state. But yeah, there's a lack of clarity around what a reasonable recovery period is there. Principle number two, tenants must remain committed to the terms of their lease subject to any temporary arrangements negotiated with their landlords and failure to uphold key terms of their lease will forfeit their protection under the code. That leads quite nicely into one of the other key concepts, which is tenants must continue to comply with their obligations under the lease and a failure to do so will lead to them forfeiting their protections under the code. So essentially what that means is a tenant could lose all of the benefits under these principles that we're talking about if they fail to comply with their other obligations under their lease. So the really challenging thing from a practical perspective for a lot of our clients who are tenants are leases are very long and complex legal documents and the devil is in the detail with them. There are just so many requirements for tenants and a landlord, if they wanted to be a little bit cheeky, they could try to work out if the tenant was actually technically not complying with some of the other clauses of the lease, which have nothing to do with payment of rent, and try to kick them out under those clauses. I see. Okay. So, for example, if the tenancy agreement says your business sign must not be larger than a meter and your business sign happens to be 1.1 meters high, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So it very much is a case-by-case assessment about what's in the terms of the exact lease, but that's a good example. Apart from payment, what are other usual key terms of a lease? Yes, so there are a lot of requirements in most leases and it's common for leases to be 50, 60 pages long. But some of the key things that a tenant must do include just ensuring that the premises is kept in a good state of repair. And, you know, they have to, as a tenant, you have to take out certain insurance policies and you've got to do just pretty much anything possible to preserve the value of of the premises and make sure that you're not taking any action which could, I, I guess, cause financial harm to the landlord. And if we take that back to what we were talking about before and a tenant potentially losing all their protections under the code if they breach a term of their lease, if they allow the premises to get into a poor state of repair because they've shut up shop for, you know, six months, the landlord could potentially terminate the lease under those kind of clauses. Principle number three, landlords must offer tenants proportionate rent reductions in the form of waivers and deferrals, such as deferral slash reduction of payments and pausing or hibernating the lease based on the reduction in the particular tenant's trade during the pandemic. Any amount of reduction provided by a waiver must not be recouped by the landlord over the term of the lease. The third point? The third point, which is another one that a lot of our clients who are tenants absolutely loved in in the code was that landlords have to offer rent reductions to tenants, which is proportionate to the impact that the pandemic has had on their business. So essentially what that means is 
if I'm a business owner and I have a lease and I've lost 50% of my revenue because of the, the pandemic, then appropriate reduction in rent has to be provided to me. So that's a very key, key aspect. But it says waivers and deferrals. And of course, there's a huge difference between whether it is a waiver or a deferral. But that is not clarified in the code to what extent it should be a waiver and to what extent it should be a deferral. Yeah, it absolutely is. Principle number four. At least 50% of the total reduction in rent payable by a tenant during the pandemic period must be in the form of rental waivers and should constitute a greater proportion in cases where failure to do so would compromise the tenant's capacity to fulfil their ongoing lease obligations. Tenants must also consider the landlord's financial ability to provide these additional waivers and may waive the 50% requirement by agreement. So in terms of the rent reductions that I mentioned, there's a further kind of piece of clarification in the code which states that at the very minimum, 50% of the rent reduction given to the tenant must be in the form of a waiver. So at least 50% of that rent reduction, the landlord must never try to recover from the tenant ever again whereas the remaining portion can be a deferral of rent where the landlord essentially promises to not try to collect that rent for a period of time. There's actually a really interesting little piece of clarification in relation to the waiver and deferral requirement, which is that landlords and tenants can mutually agree between themselves to dispense with that minimum 50% requirement. And the thing that I've seen a little bit of so far has been landlords or agents of commercial premises going straight to the tenant with a nice looking contract and basically, you know, saying, we're trying to look after you, we're reducing your rent by X amount or we're deferring a good portion of the rent until later sign this contract and we'll make that happen. But within some of those contracts, the landlord is actually putting in clauses which requires the tenant to dispense with that 50% minimum waiver requirement. So this one is particularly open to abuse and I think unsophisticated tenants or tenants who don't get advice on uh, any offer put to them could fall into a pretty significant legal trap there. So be really careful before you sign an agreement with your landlord. What I've heard so far is 75% of waivers and um, so of businesses that have been closed down by the government, so gyms, restaurants and cafes, I've heard 75% of waiver, even though those gyms were still able to do online training or just one-on-one -on -one training and cafes, even when the cafes were still doing some trade through takeaway, etc., even then they got a 75% waiver, which I thought was very generous. Yeah, absolutely. And something that the code actually mentions is it's really important for case-by-case -case assessments and it emphasizes that there really is no one-size-fits-all solution. What have you seen so far? Yeah, it probably depends on whose side you're on. If you're a tenant and your business was completely shut down and using the, the gym example that you referred to earlier, if I was acting on behalf of the tenant, I would be saying that the code makes it quite clear that the rent reduction needs to be proportionate to the reduction in trade. Most gyms would have a 90 to 95% decrease in revenue during this period because perhaps they're making a little bit of money through online classes and things like that. But, but it wouldn't be much. It wouldn't be much. And I would be saying that, look, revenues decreased by 95%. A proportionate decrease in rent would be 95%. So that means the 75% is actually not such a good outcome. Yeah, I, I personally think the financials for the relevant business is really important. And that's a key part of the negotiations. And that's why I think ideally a tenant should be getting their accountant 
and their lawyer to assist them in preparing for those conversations. Whatever your drop-in turnover is, that percentage should be applied to your rent and you should receive a rent reduction of that percentage. And then of that rent reduction, at least 50% should be waived, if not more. Absolutely. I think that is the fairest starting position for both parties. That is the real, if you came to me and asked me what would be a fair place to start, that is the absolute point that you would start. It's just a matter of who has more leverage in the negotiations to see if they can get their, you know, their more favorable outcome from there. Principle number five, if the parties agree to rental deferrals and unless otherwise agreed by the parties, payments of deferred amounts must be amortized over the greater of the remaining lease term or 24 months. Point number five. Point number five or principle number five, which uh, is quite an interesting one, is that if there is an agreement to defer rent, unless otherwise agreed between the parties, the deferral amounts have to be essentially, you know, pushed back over the greater of the remaining term of the lease and 24 months. So essentially what that means is, if you've got a very short remaining term of the lease, the tenant's deferred rent would be repayable over 24 months. Whereas if you had a relatively long term of the lease left, which was more than 24 months, then the deferred rent just gets paid over that longer period. Quick question. Maybe it still comes up in a subsequent point, but what happens if the lease ends during the lockdown? Yeah, so this is another aspect that we're really keen to see what the legislation states. And there is a little, it's a little bit vague in the principles about what happens in, in that situation. But I certainly think on one hand, if you were the tenant, you would be saying, it doesn't matter if the lease ends, I should be able to pay back that deferred rent over the long period of time that's prescribed. Whereas if you were the landlord, you'd be saying, the, the lease came to an end. We need to tidy up these payments now. Yes, but the code says it's the greater of it, either the remaining lease or 24 months, but the greater of it. So you would never, following the code, you would never have to pay back the deferred amount quicker than 24 months. So under That's the code, true. you would always at least have 24 months, if not longer. But That's Scott, my question actually headed into a different direction. My question was off topic. And that is just really what happens if the lease ends during the lockdown? Can the uh, landlord then force the business to, to move or has the business a right to kind of stay put until the lockdown ends? Because I can imagine at the moment, of course, it is a lot more expensive to get moving trucks, it's more difficult to negotiate in new lease, etc. So what happens in those cases? It's a really good question. And I wish there was more clarity in the code. And I'm very hopeful that the state and territory legislation will clarify that position because at the moment, it's very unclear what the impact of termination of a lease is. Depending on the specific lease, what would happen is there would either be just a fixed term or there'd be a fixed term with options to renew and they're usually the tenant's option to renew and that's the the classic example that you referred to then where perhaps there's an initial term and the tenant has a couple of three-year options or five-year options once that initial term expires if a if a lease just comes to its natural end point and say all of the options have been used up and it comes to a kind of expiry point most leases contain provisions which essentially allow for a month-by-month -month period of holding over where the lease just continues to tick over until someone terminates the lease. If the landlord terminates the lease because the lease has come to an end, would that still fall under principle one? It wouldn't fall under principle one because now it's not because of a non-payment. It's because the contract has come to an end. So that means in that scenario, the tenant is really not protected by the code because that scenario doesn't seem to be covered by the code. That's absolutely right. And I think when the code was being developed, the focus was probably on leases that had a fair bit of time to still run. 
whereas if a lease was probably due to come to its natural conclusion in in the next few months or, or something like that it's probably not as high risk as the longer leases and was the thinking that if the lease was going to terminate anyway sometime between April and October, then that should have been sorted out long before anyway. Anybody who left it that long and didn't renew the lease or negotiated something new probably was closing down or something similar anyway. Is that the thinking? Yeah, I believe so. And I think just the risk profile is quite different if you have, say, a 15-year lease versus a lease with a few months left to run because these case-by-case renegotiations of, of leases that the code requests that people do, it's very appropriate for leases that still have a fair bit of time to run, probably less critical for, for leases with a shorter time. Principle number six, landlords must pass to the tenant any reductions in statutory charges, examples land tax and council rights, in an appropriate proportion with regards to the terms of the lease. The next kind of two principles are kind of interrelated and they have this flavour of the landlord having to share benefits that it receives with the tenant. So if the landlord gets any, you know, reduction in statutory charges, land tax, council rates, those kind of things an appropriate proportion needs to be essentially provided to the tenant. It's quite curious from a legal perspective what an appropriate proportion would be, but I think the overarching concept of of that particular principle is if the landlord's getting some kind of concession or benefit or reduction in a charge, it's not really fair for them to just keep that for themselves while the tenant is is probably suffering in their own business. So what would you think would be fair? For example, if land tax is waived, should they pass it on 100% to the tenant or should they pass it on 50% to the tenant? So it's quite interesting. Land tax in particular is an interesting one because just taking an example, in Victoria, the retail leasing legislation says that For a retail lease, land tax cannot be passed on to a tenant. So in that situation, if the landlord got some kind of reduction in land tax, it wouldn't really be appropriate for the tenant to benefit from that because the the tenant was never included. Exactly. Whereas if it was a non-retail lease for Victorian purposes, and the tenant was having to pay the full amount of land land tax as it became due, then it would be appropriate for that full reduction to be provided to the tenant. So it really depends on what the charge is and what the the general situation is with the, Mm. the landlord and tenant. What government charges or statutory charges are usually included in a commercial lease? Yeah, it's quite an interesting one because this is, of course, very, very specific in the different states and territories. And even, you know, Victoria to New South Wales and Victoria to Queensland or New South Wales to Queensland, they have vastly different regimes which apply. Isn't that just negotiation between landlord and tenant? Absolutely. There's, there's certainly an element of that. Sometimes the legislation steps in and provides a bit of a safety net for tenants in saying, landlords, you can't pass on A, B or C. But outside of that, you're spot on. It's usually just a commercial negotiation about what the tenant has to pay. Principle number seven. If a financial institution provides a benefit to the landlord, for example, a deferral of loan payments, the landlord should seek to share the benefit with the tenant. Yeah, I guess on a similar note, the next principle is that if a financial institution provides a benefit to a landlord, then they should try to essentially share that benefit with the tenant. It's quite similar to that previous principle that we talked about. But if, for example, a bank who essentially had a mortgage over the premises allowed the landlord to defer loan payments... To some extent, the landlord should try to share some of the benefit of that with with the tenant. I would personally say that if you were the tenant, you would want to try to work out from the landlord what benefits they got from their financial institution 
and try to get some of that benefit passed across to you in some way, irrespective of whether it's interest or, you know, time periods or, or what it is. But of course, if you're the landlord, you probably don't want to pass too many of those benefits across. Yes. So you, you just withhold that information, I assume. Yeah. So I can the, imagine yeah. I can imagine this one is a tricky one for the tenant because it's very tricky for them to actually know and prove what benefits the landlord did receive from their bank. And hence that would be difficult. The only thing that the tenant really knows is that interest rates across the board have dropped. That's the only thing the tenant really knows. You hit the nail on the head before when you said, you know, it's quite hard for a tenant to get the financial information off the landlord because on what basis would they do so? It's it's really hard unless you got to some kind of situation where you're going to court or potentially even to mediation it's going to be a very challenging process to convince a landlord to provide sensitive financial information. Principle number eight, landlords should seek to waive recovery of expenses and outgoings from tenants during periods in which a tenant is unable to trade due to the pandemic. However, in such circumstances, landlords will also reserve the right to reduce services as required. Yes. Yeah, so the next principle is that the landlord should seek to waive outgoings during the period in which the tenants are unable to trade. So just to take an example of a very common outgoing and a common situation at the moment, if the tenant owned and operated a gym, that gym was forced to close during this period and the landlord previously arranged for regular cleaning of that premises and those cleaning costs were passed on to the tenant. Of course, during this period, it wouldn't really be that appropriate for the landlord to continue to bill for cleaning a premises that's not being used. So what this principle is getting at is if there are outgoings that maybe the tenant's not benefiting from, they should try to waive them to the greatest extent possible. Principle number nine. If a party will be required to make repayments under a temporary arrangement, the repayment should occur over an extended period so as to avoid placing additional financial burden on the tenant and not commence until either the pandemic period ends or the existing lease expires, taking into account a reasonable subsequent recovery period. In terms of the repayments under any temporary arrangement essentially this principle is actually quite obscure and it says that if a party will be required to make repayments under a temporary arrangement the repayments should occur over an extended period so to avoid placing a big financial burden on the tenant or not commence until the pandemic ends or um, the existing lease expires. So essentially what that's saying is if the landlord and tenant come up with a temporary arrangement here to the greatest extent possible, the landlord shouldn't be just going for the jugular, trying to chase every payment straight away. There should be some kind of, uh, I, I guess, extended period for them to pay and try not to put too much financial pressure on the tenant. It's quite vague, but I think as a general principle, it makes sense. Can you think of an example for repayments under a temporary arrangement? It's quite an obscure one, but there could be some kind of temporary arrangement where the landlord says, okay, you're already in rent arrears for $100,000, for example, before this pandemic even hit and you were going to pay that within a month, what we'll essentially do to try to make things a bit easier for you, we'll just push that out over, you know, a one-year period that you have to repay that unpaid rent. Yeah, it's quite an obscure principle, but um, hopefully that example helps. Principle number 10. Landlords should not apply any fees, interest, charges, or punitive interest to any waiver or deferral of rent. In terms of the next one, the landlords should not apply any fees, interest, charges or, you know, penalty interest of any nature to any waiver or deferral of rent. Of course, what that's getting at is the landlord not applying a ridiculously high interest rate to deferred rent so that the tenant's debt just continues to, to mount. 
once again, pretty straightforward. Yes, but not just a ridiculously high interest rate, but any interest. Landlords should not apply any fees, interest, charges, or punitive interest. So even just normal interest should not be charged on any deferred amount. Absolutely. And I think the, the spirit of this particular principle was landlords are probably in the better position out of the landlord and the tenant and of course it helps the the tenant a little bit if they're not having to worry about the deferred rent ballooning even if it's just at a normal commercial interest rate certainly landlords are not too happy about this particular principle because you would assume that if there is that deferral at the very least you would get CPI or CPI plus some amount or a commercial rate of interest, but the principle is quite clear on this point. Certainly landlords not overly happy about this one, but I personally think it strikes a relatively fair balance. I can imagine they're not happy about any of this. Apart from point two that says tenants must remain committed to the other terms of the lease, any of the other points are fully against the landlord and for the tenant right there is some aspect and there are some flavors throughout these principles that do favor landlords in their ability to mutually agree with the tenant to waive some of these principles but you're right that this code is very much designed to protect tenants principle number 11 during the pandemic period and reasonable recovery period afterwards Landlords must not draw on any security provided by a tenant, whether in the form of a cash bond, bank guarantee, or personal guarantee. The next one is essentially during the pandemic period and the reasonable recovery period, the landlord can't draw on any security that's been provided by the tenant in relation to unpaid rent and Of course, there are different security arrangements which might apply to a lease. There might be a personal guarantee from the directors of the particular business. There might be a security deposit or a bank guarantee. Irrespective of what form it takes, the landlord can't just try to dip into that to to try to recover unpaid rent or to try to enforce, enforce their rights in that way. And it speaks again about a reasonable recovery period afterwards. And I assume the recovery period is probably linked to the turnover. So once the turnover is back at pre-COVID-19 levels, then the reasonable recovery period probably will come to an end at some stage. But while the uh, turnover is still significantly below COVID-19 levels, then you probably can still claim that you are in a recovery period. And it's so unclear because reasonable recovery period is such a subjective term. Uh, At what stage is there a recovery? Is it when a business gets to 100% of its previous turnover? Is it when the damage just stops being done at such a rapid rate? It's, yeah, it's quite hard to tell. So it'd be interesting to see if we get any further guidance on that concept. Principle number 12. If the parties agree to a rent waiver and or deferral period, the tenant should be provided with an opportunity to extend the lease for an equivalent period to provide additional time to trade during the recovery period after the pandemic concludes. The next one is that if there is a rent waiver or deferral, which I'd suspect most, um, most situations will involve that, the tenant should be provided with an opportunity to extend the lease for an equivalent period. So essentially that's just to eliminate any unfairness to the tenant from the fact that their business has gone into hibernation during this uh, this pandemic period. So that one's relatively straightforward as well. What I suspect, and perhaps I'm a little bit cynical, is that in practice, if there's, say, a few months left of a lease and the landlord just fails to engage in any negotiations around a variation to the lease because of the code and that lease just comes to an end, 
the tenants in quite a challenging position because what do they do? Do they then invest a lot of money in, you know, time and, and legal costs and things like that to, to try to pursue the landlord to get a short extension to their lease for, you know, maybe a couple of months? I think on a practical level, that one will be quite challenging for smaller tenants if they only have a very short period left on their lease. Principle number 13, landlords should agree to a freeze on rent increases for the duration of the pandemic and a reasonable recovery period, unless otherwise agreed between the parties. The next uh, principle, and we're nearly there, nearly finished with the principles, is that the landlords agree to freeze rent increases. The only exception is for turnover-based rent calculations. So some leases peg the calculation of rent to the turnover of the business. Of course, in that situation, it wouldn't be appropriate to freeze a rent increase, but in pretty much every other situation, uh, a freeze to the rent increases would be fair. Okay, so the principle number 13 basically says landlords should agree to a freeze on rent increases. So if your contract had stipulated before that rent would increase sometime during the pandemic, then principle 13 says scrap that, it should just continue at the previous rent. Correct. And there's a bit of uncertainty here that if, for example, there was an annual increase by 5% to rent, and there's a freeze during the pandemic recovery period and during the pandemic, does that mean that immediately after the recovery period, the rent can be increased by 5%? Or does it mean that the landlord misses that opportunity? It's a little bit unclear, but hopefully the legislation will um, give us some answers there. Principle 14. During the pandemic, landlords must not levy any penalties against a tenant that reduces their opening hours or ceases to trade and must not take steps to prevent the tenant from doing so. The final point is that the landlords must not levy any penalties against the tenant in relation to essentially their operating hours or them ceasing to trade. And it's quite an interesting one here because there are some situations where landlords have a vested interest in making sure that that operating hours are maintained and that you know, if they have a shopping complex, that all the businesses are open. But what this principle is designed to do is essentially prevent the landlord from taking a bit of a stick to the tenant if there are changes to the operating hours or if a tenant just essentially thinks the business isn't sustainable, keeping it open for the normal hours, I need to cut it down a little bit like that. And that basically links back to principle number three, where the landlord must offer tenants a proportionate rent reduction proportionately to the drop in turnover. So then, of course, the landlord could say, well, of course, your turnover dropped because you closed down. So then, of course, you have a turnover of close to zero, even though you didn't have to close down, you are a retail shop or God knows what, you didn't have to close down and you only have this rent reduction because you did close down. So therefore, because you decided to close down, even though you didn't have to, I'm going to issue some penalty. That's a perfect example of how these principles interrelate with each other. And that's another reason it'll be so interesting to see the the actual legislation about how those um, interrelations work but yeah it's certainly certainly quite a a challenging one for both landlords and tenants to wrap their head around how all of these principles will actually impact their business Uh, but it also has a section at the very beginning which essentially encourages good faith negotiations and conversations between landlords and tenants and it really is trying to push people to come to a commercial compromise rather than the government having to intervene and create hard and fast rules. Sorry, just one last question. Have you already seen quite a few clients who come to you after the damage has been done in terms of after they signed a contract with their landlord, which they shouldn't have signed because that agreement was very much not in their interest when you compare it to the code? 
there've been plenty of those scenarios that have unfolded, unfortunately, but it does give me some hope that we've managed to come in just at the perfect time with some of them. I actually had a situation yesterday where a tenant had given up pretty much all of their protections that they were able to waive under the code and a contract had been prepared by the landlord and they were ready to sign it. But it was only upon hearing about some of the things that they were giving up that they decided to hold back the pen and they're going to be in a much better position going forward because they're actually going to tackle it properly now. So to answer your question, there's been plenty of people who have done this incorrectly already. I'm sure there'll be plenty more, but fortunately there are occasionally business owners out there who who get advice before they sign things. Welcome back. Six big learnings. Number one, whatever you drop in turnover percentage-wise, that is the percentage by which your rent should decline. So if your turnover decreases by 40%, then your lease payments should decrease by 40%. Learning number two, half of the rent decrease, so in our example 20%, because half of 40% is 20%, half of the rent decrease should be a rent waiver, meaning that portion is gone and you never have to pay that. Learning number three, the deferred portion of the rent won't become due at the end of the lockdown, but will be amortized over the rest of the lease or 24 months, whichever is greater. Learning number four, you can't be evicted for non-payment of rent or lease during the crisis. Learning number five, you don't have to pay interest or penalties on any outstanding rent during the crisis. And learning number six, don't sign anything until you have read the code of conduct. And a quick reminder, the enrollment for the JobKeeper payment opened officially yesterday. It actually opened on Sunday, but it opened officially yesterday on Monday, the 20th of April, please make sure that you and your clients enroll before the 26th of April, before the end of the second fortnight in April, if you want to claim the JobKeeper payments for the months of April. Thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.